The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. When our family toured the Civil War battlefield at Gettysburg several years ago, the first thing we did was to stop in the visitor's center before actually walking across parts of the town in the battlefield where the skirmishes took place. And in that visitor center, we were treated to an overview of that three-day battle with a, a diorama set up. It was a topographical map that filled a room and it had little lights on it. And the lights would come on depicting the troop movements and the actual engagements between the northern armies and the southern army there. And it gave us a sense of what all took place. We had a big picture in mind before we actually set foot on any of the places where the battles took place. It was helpful to know what was coming. Well, our text this morning is something like that. It's designed to help us understand what life was like during the period of Israel's history known as the period of the judges, the time when there was not a king, but judges were raised up by God to lead his people. This is the period of time after Joshua led the Israelites from the wilderness where they'd wandered 40 years into the land of promise after he died, but before God raised up the first king, Saul, who was then followed by David, ushering in this time of the monarchy. In Israel. The text that we're going to look at this morning is found beginning in the second chapter of the book of Judges. Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament, and we're going to read from Judges chapter 2, verse 6, down to chapter 3, verse 6. It's found on page 201. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you, so you can just open up there, and I want to encourage you to follow along. If you look at the big number two, you'll find that it's a chapter. Go down to the little number six, and that's where I'm going to begin reading. And I want to read this text for us this morning so that we can get some sense of what the rest of the book is going to illustrate for us. We, we get the big picture in what these verses tell us, and then the rest of the book gives us specific examples of what this big picture actually consists of. And, and what we're going to see in the text this morning and what we'll see in the weeks to come, God willing, is a very specific pattern, a, a pattern that repeats itself throughout this two to 400-year history of Judges. It goes like this. The people of God rebel, and God gets angry at their rebellion. So he raises up enemies to oppress them. And after a period of oppression, the people cry out in pain and sorrow to God. God has compassion upon his people, and so he saves his people by raising up a judge to come and rule over them and deliver them. And peace reigns then through that deliverance as long as the judge lives. But then the judge dies, and the cycle starts over again. Well, in and through all of these 
illustrations of how God dealt with his people and how his people responded to him during the period of the judges. There's one overarching lesson. It it goes all the way through the book, and we're going to see it this morning in these introductory verses I'm about to read. And that is that we as people created in God's image, even we who know God savingly through faith in Jesus Christ, we have great sin. Our sin is great. But God's grace is greater. That's the theme of this morning's study. Follow along then as I begin in Joshua chapter 2, verse 6. Hear the word of God. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at timnath Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in the, on, the Mount, on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon 
as far as Lebeth Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. What this passage teaches us and what the whole book of Judges teaches us is that in and through everything that took place during that two to four hundred year period of Israel's history, God was at work. In and through the individual stories of the Judges, God was the one who oftentimes behind the scenes and sometimes bursting very clearly upon the scenes is the one who is at work accomplishing the salvation of his people. Though we're going to read about in our journey through the book of Judges, men like Othniel and Ehud and Samson and Gideon, the real hero of Judges is God. In and through every Judges exploits, God is at work. In and through every crisis that comes to the people, God is at work. In and through every deliverance that comes to the people out of that crisis, we see God's hand at work. And what we learn through all of this is that though our sin is indeed great, God's grace is always greater. The first thing I want to call attention to this morning as we look at this kind of introductory overview of the rest of the book is that our faith is always in danger. Because of sin, the the faith that we have in the living God through Jesus Christ is always in danger. That which God has revealed to us is always in danger of being forgotten and lost. Judges illustrates how close God's people always are to losing the faith. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that on any given moment, any given point in the history of the church, We are never more than one generation from complete apostasy. We're never more than one generation from ignoring, neglecting, forgetting altogether, or rejecting that which God has revealed to be saving truth. The text begins by calling attention to Joshua's generation, the commander that God raised up to lead the Israelites into the land of promise, the one who led the armies to conquer and establish the people in that land of promise. Look at verse 7. We see this summary given to us. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So what was true of Joshua's generation? Well, they served the Lord. They took possession of the land. That's what verse 6 says. And they knew the work of the Lord. They had seen the great work of the Lord. But as we noticed last week, not even Joshua's generation perfectly served the Lord. They had their blemishes and their failures as well. Though they possessed the land, they did not dispossess the Canaanites completely from the land which God had specifically commanded them to do. Nevertheless, 
they were conscientiously devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He and he alone was their God. Their devotion, though imperfect and even weak at times, was grounded in the fact that they had experienced the great work of God's redemption. Joshua and all his generation had experienced not only God's power in giving them the promised land, but also had experienced what it meant to be delivered from bondage in Egypt, to be set free from slavery, to be led and provided for 40 years in the wilderness. They knew God. They had no reason to doubt God's power, His grace, His faithfulness. They had experienced redemption firsthand. And as recipients of His grace, beneficiaries of His power, they served the Lord. They lived for the Lord. They led their households in worshiping this God of grace and salvation as long as they lived. But, as always happens, mom, dad, Joshua died. And his generation died. And upon the passing of that generation, we are given a description of the generation after Joshua. Look at verse 10. It says in the middle there, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They lost the knowledge of God. It wasn't that they lost knowledge about God. They knew about God, but they lost personal knowledge of Him. That's what it means to know the Lord, to have a deep personal relationship with Him. They lost a deep awareness of and appreciation of His great work for them. And so consequently, they turned away from the Lord. The text says they abandoned the Lord. They discarded Him. Look at verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 11 describes that as evil. And then verse 11 at the end, and verse 12, and also verse 13 says, they went after other gods. Verse 13, look at it. It says, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Now, now there are two important connections that I don't want us to miss in this part of our text. The first is the connection between what this generation did, their actions, and God's assessment of their actions. What they did, what God says about what they did. Do you see what is involved in this turning away from the Lord? Verse 12 says they abandoned the Lord. What does that look like? Well, it looks like going after other gods. The last part of verse 12 says, serving these other gods. And in verse 11, this is called in the sight of God, evil. What they did, going after other gods. Abandoned their exclusive devotion to the one true living God in God's sight constitutes evil. The text mentions Baals and the 
Ashtoreth in verse 13. Well, these were the fertility gods of the Canaanites. There are various versions of them, and so oftentimes you'll see Baal hyphenated with another word to express a, a specific variety of Baal. But overall, it was a sense of these are the gods that provide for us, that provide prosperity for us. These are the gods that give our crops a bountiful harvest. These are the gods that cause our livestock to be vigorous and healthy and reproductive. These are the gods that enable our families to prosper and to be reproductive. The Canaanites believed that such prosperity rained down when Baal would have sexual relationships with his consort, Ashtoreth. And it wasn't just that you sat around and hoped that that would happen. Because the worshipers of these fertility gods were instructed that in order to get Baal and Ashtoreth to have sexual relations, they themselves must go to the Baal shrines and engage the temple prostitutes there sexually in order to provoke the gods that they believed existed to provide blessings upon their land, upon their families. When the Israelites settled around the Canaanites in the land of promise and they didn't dispel them completely, they found themselves with their sense of devotion to one true God, exclusively one God, no other gods. They found themselves to be the weirdos in society. One God. Only one God. Their neighbors looked at them strangely. They were out of step. Yes, this one God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Yes, he provided for them 40 years in the desert. Yes, he actually gave them the land that the Canaanites had had by themselves previously. But, you Israelites, if you want to prosper in your day-to-day -day lives, well, you need to be willing to take pointers from those of us who have been doing this for a while. You need to pay homage to the gods that everybody serves here in Canaan. Well, what does that have to do with us? I mean, what are we to learn about this description of the generation after Joshua abandoning the living God and devoting themselves to the gods of their pagan neighbors? Well, it's not that I think that anybody here is in danger of running out and building a shrine to Baal or Ashtoreth, and starting to worship such a pagan god. But every one of us here is in danger of taking our cues, our marching orders on how to think and live from the variety of influences in the world around us. Every one of us here is in danger of buying into the thinking that the world is trying to sell us of what constitutes the good life and how to pursue and acquire that good life. It's okay to trust Jesus, we are told, though even that's increasingly being suspect. If you want Jesus to get you into heaven, if that works for you, that's okay. But if you want to get the most out of life, you want to succeed in business, 
You want to do well in sports. You want to have the best education you can have. You want to know how best to get on in your family so that it's happy. You want to aspire to do more in this world than others. Then you better listen to us. We know what we're talking about. You can have Jesus. We're not telling you to get rid of Jesus. We're just telling you to set him aside for a little bit. And let's deal with real life. That's what the Israelites were sold. And they began to fall in line with their Canaanite neighbors. One writer says they were Canaanized. They were Canaanized. I think it's an apt description of what can happen to God's people in any generation. They began to adopt their values, their judgments, and their gods. And in the process... They abandoned the true God. Why is that? Because you can't have the gods of this world and the true God. He claims exclusive rights over people. He and He alone is God. And He calls us to love Him with our heart, our soul, and our mind and strength to try to serve God, to try to hang on to a sense of relationship with God while you chase after and buy into the values of this world is to abandon God. That's what the Scripture says. It's why the Scripture so often warns us against idolatry. Do you ever read those passages in the Bible that talk about idolatry and just kind of think, well, yeah, I don't have any stones in my house or carvings in my house that I bow down to and so it really doesn't apply to me have you ever wondered about that have you ever wondered why the little letter first John the first letter the apostle John wrote that is recorded in the New Testament ends with these words the the last thing that that letter says is little children keep yourselves from idols what in the world does John mean is he concerned that you're going to go out and build some kind of structure and start bowing down to it? No. John recognizes what John Calvin later identified and put in this language, that the human heart is an incurable idol factory. We know how to manufacture idols all the time. We know how to take even good things, wonderful things, gifts of God, and exalt them to a place of importance in our lives so that they become competitors with God. And so the scripture is warning us not to abandon the true God by looking to idols and harboring idols in our heart. Anything that we would look to to give us a sense of identity besides the living God. Anything that would compete with our supreme devotion and allegiance to the living God can become an idol. Brothers and sisters, when we harbor idols like that in our heart and our devotion to God gets split, begins to be parsed out to Him and other things, we fall prey to the very thing that we see leading these Israelites away from God. We fall prey to the great temptation of abandoning God. Well, how can you know if you're falling into subtle 
idolatry. If it's a matter of the heart and not simply a matter of external expressions of worship, how can we know? Well, I've been helped by Tim Keller's instruction at this very point. He encourages us to identify in our lives every area that we can think about. Your career, your business, marriage, family, children, parents, school, your time, your finances, whatever it is, just think about all of the realms of your life. And then take each one of them and ask two questions. The first question is this. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Second question. Am I willing to accept whatever God sins in this area? If you find yourself not able to say yes in any area, then what's going on there is an opportunity for you to begin to ask the questions of, okay, what am I being controlled by in this area? What is it in me? What, what has gained ascendancy in my affections, in my thinking, such that I hesitate saying, God, I'm willing to do whatever you say about this area, about my time, about my money, about marriage or singleness, children, education? Or God, I'm not, I'm not willing to accept whatever you sin because, you know, I just think this would be great for me. I think this is what I need. When you find yourself unable to say yes, brothers, sisters, there's opportunity then to go to school on yourself and to ask the Lord to search you, to examine you, to help you identify what is it, what is it in this area of my life that somehow has crept in and has caused the rule and reign and lordship of God to be eclipsed. Well, the first important connection then that I want us to note is what God regards as evil in light of the peoples running after other gods. God says when we begin to devote ourselves to anything above Him, anything along with Him, anything where He in His supremacy is undermined, in His mind, it's evil. It's evil. Well, the second connection that I want to call attention to here is the relationship between Israel's apostasy, that generation that fell away from God, and the reason for it. They did it, but the text tells us also why they did it. Why did the generation after Joshua do this great evil in God's sight? Verse 10 tells us it was because they did not know the Lord. They did not know the great work of the Lord. Verse 12 puts it like this. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Do you hear this? They forgot the good news. They, they forgot God's saving work. They forgot His grace. They forgot they'd been redeemed. 
How in the world did that happen? I mean, how does a whole generation just forget? You know, when we consider children who are brought up in the home of believing parents, children who go astray, and you try to analyze it, oftentimes, almost always, our analysis is just too simplistic. It's too simplistic. We say, well, you know, the parents just didn't train him right. If the parents had taught him right, if they'd done everything right, then he wouldn't walk away from the faith. Or we say, well, parents did everything right, but, you know, he, he just didn't listen. She wouldn't pay attention, so she walked away. Rarely, rarely can we say either one of those absolutely is the right assessment. Usually it's a combination of both. But what we have in our text is a whole generation that walked away from God. What we find revealed to us is this generation after Joshua forsook the faith of its fathers. Whenever you see that generationally happening, you can pretty well conclude that the blame is found in a systemic failure of parents and leaders to teach the generation rising the ways of the Lord. If it's universal, if it's the norm, then we need to back up and say, what are we doing? We who are stewards of this saving work of God, this knowledge that God's given to us of Himself, this revelation of His grace in redeeming sinners at great cost. What are we doing with that with regard to the generation that is coming? This is precisely why God instructs His people as we heard read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 earlier this morning. Listen to part of that again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. That's why God said that. Because our faith is always in danger of being lost. It's always in danger of falling away. We're never more than one generation from complete apostasy. This is why the festivals were given, the feast days were given, so that regularly the people of God would have to gather and hear again the purpose and the rationale for these festivals. And Passover, for example, when the children are to ask, what does this mean? And the parents instruct them in the meaning of these great high holy days. How in the world did this generation after Joshua forget the Lord and his great work. How did it happen? Brothers and sisters, it did not happen by the parents saying, listen, kids, this stuff's not important. It didn't happen intentionally. Nobody told that rising generation, ah, just forget God. They didn't have to do that. It happened by the generation that knew God assuming that because they knew God, their children knew God as well. Assuming because they had been gripped by the grace of God in salvation, so surely their children will see it as well. When you assume the knowledge and grace of God, 
your worship will become perfunctory performance. Just going through the motions because it's on the schedule. Lackadaisical regard for the means that God has prescribed for His grace to be known and celebrated will become the norm. Yeah, we read the Bible. Yeah, we pray. Yeah, we sing. Yeah, we go to church. No heart in it. Both parents and leaders in the generation after Joshua lost sight of the importance of training the next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This happens when your faith becomes ritualistic. Just motions you go through. It happens when religious instruction is just one subject among many others. You need to know science, you need to know math, you need to know economics, yeah, you need to know Bible. Rather than recognizing that in the Bible, what we have is revelation from God that is foundational to all understanding. That gives us the ability to see and think rightly about the world. Whether it's mathematics, economics, literature, history, art, or any other discipline. It happens when parents teach their kids truth from Scripture that they themselves aren't really moved by. Parents, brothers and sisters, one of the problems our children have in really buying into what we say is they watch what we do. They can see through going through the motions. They can hear you talk about how important Jesus Christ is. He's our Lord. He's our life. And then just treat as insignificant His Word, His church, His provisions of grace that He reveals to us in Scripture. Listen again to what God had Moses tell the people in Deuteronomy 6. These words I command to you today shall be on your heart. That's primary. They've got to be in you. It's not just textbook, textbook learning. It's not just academic exercise. These words must be in our hearts. They must grip us. We have to buy in and believe this. Then, then, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You see, when? When do you teach this? Parents, when do you teach your kids this? Adults, when do we teach kids in the church this? Well, it's Sunday morning's Bible study. Wednesday night Bible study, right? Certainly, those are important. That's not what this text says. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise comprehensive instruction born out of a heartfelt conviction. That's what God calls us to engage our rising generation with. Moms and dads, we've got to gladly own this responsibility. One of the best things I think the parents can do, one of the best things we can do, is to recognize that the world is a classroom. The world is a classroom. It's God's world. And so we have opportunity to help 
ourselves and to help our children think about God in any aspect of this world. Walking by the way and you see a flower, that's a flower God made. See birds in the air, God made that. The moon, the sun, God did that. You're engaging art, watching some movie, you're reading some book, and points are made and wisdom is given. That's, that's a reflection of God's creativity and wisdom. You open your computer, you check your smartphone. Who thought of that? Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, these guys were geniuses. But you know what? They are geniuses in the sense only that they reflect the genius of God. So we turn the world into a classroom. And we recognize that this is God's world. And He's the one who not only has created us in our rebellion against Him, He's redeemed us in Jesus Christ. So every sin, every failure becomes an opportunity. Not to try to buck up and do better and say, oh, well, you know, hope the kids didn't see that one. <laughs> Comes an opportunity to say, kids, God had to give his son for sin and failure, just like you saw your dad commit. I need a savior. And when they sin, honey, this is why God sent a savior. It's to save sinners from sin. This isn't one course in a curriculum. This is life. Life that begins to come into sharper and sharper focus as we understand more and more of what God has revealed to us concerning Himself, ourselves, and the world in which we live. Moms and dads, church leaders, church, we've got to own this responsibility. We cannot mail it in. We cannot just simply go through the motions. And, and I know my own heart, and I know there are moms and dads here, and you perhaps are having your conscience scraped right now. That's not my intent. But if you find yourself guilty, repent. We have a Savior. Jesus died for the failures of parents. And if you need to repent to your kids, Praise God, that's part of the training them. Show them what repentance looks like. I often say to parents, you've got two choices. If you're going to take seriously what God says about raising your kids, you've got two choices. One is either be perfect or learn to repent. Of course, we must learn to repent and demonstrate to our kids what true humility looks like, what humiliation feels like, what joy, forgiveness feels like, looks like, because we have a Savior who shed his blood for all of our parenting failures. Parents, we have resources here in the church. We'd love to put in your hands. Elders would be glad to talk to you about these things. Some of us are further down the road than others of you. And it would be our joy to try to help you understand more clearly where some of the potholes are. So you just ask us and we will be at your disposal. Church, this is a reason why we must be Vigilant in teaching and preaching the great salvation that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to assume the gospel. We cannot afford to assume that in our conversations, in our times of worship, our times of study, we can't assume the gospel. We have to be clear on it. 
We have to articulate it. It's why we must, as a church, always insist that we never back off from the full authority of the Bible. That we acknowledge without reservation, embarrassment, hesitation, that this Bible is God's Word written for us. And our responsibility is to know it, to learn it, to keep studying it, to be corrected and shaped by it, to be guided by it, because in the Bible we have revealed to us the truth that comes from God that Jesus says when we embrace it will set us free. It is truth that connects us to our Creator through a Redeemer that He Himself sent in order to rescue us from sin. We cannot afford to assume that. We're never more than one generation away from abandoning our Lord. Our sin is so great that our faith is always in danger. But there's a second thing that I want to call to your attention from this text this morning. I want us to see that our God is always faithful. Our sin is always in danger, but our God is always faithful. Israel's sin provoked God to anger. Look at verse 12 of this second chapter, the last part of verse 12, that last phrase, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Then look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. This anger that God displayed toward his people is the anger of genuine love. It's not anger opposed to love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Sometimes anger is the only appropriate expression of love. The character of this loving anger that God has toward his people is seen more clearly against the backdrop of the true nature of the sin that his people committed against him. It's described very graphically in verse 17. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Here's Israel's sin described. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. You see, when they broke God's commandments, it wasn't just falling short of a mark. It was that. It was the spurning of His love. It was turning away from love. In both the Old and New Testament, God describes Himself as a bridegroom and as His people being His bride. When His people turn away from Him and His exclusive lordship in their lives, He regards it as spiritual adultery. He takes it as a husband would take his wife giving herself to other men. And he gets angry over their forsaking him in the pursuit of other things above him. What he says is that when his people turn away from him they, and go after other gods, it's like a wife going after other men as lovers. It's like a wife prostituting herself for other men. This is God's assessment of our sin. So in loving anger, what does he do? He disciplines them for their sin. 
verse 14. So, he says, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Why did God do this? Why did God do this? Was he trying to destroy them? Was he trying to harm them? No. He was training them. He was teaching them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This was true love in action. But God didn't leave them to suffer at the hands of their enemies forever. The last phrase of verse 15 says, And they were in terrible distress. They were in distress. They felt the distress. And verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Israel's sorrow provokes God to rescue them. He sends saviors to them. Look at verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. He came to them. He loved them. He was moved by their sorrow, their pain, their suffering. So he raised up a judge, a deliverer, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And the scripture says the Lord was with the judge. So it was actually the Lord who saved them through the judges. You see what this tells us about God? He's faithful. He's faithful. He's not going to violate the promises that he has made to his people. He is going to be their God. And he promised that they will be his people. And when they rebelled against him, he doesn't just give up on them. He doesn't break his promise. He doesn't say, well, I tried my best. He comes to them, yes, even in loving anger, not to destroy them, to correct them, to bring them back, to renew them. To bring them to a humble acknowledgement of their need for him. Even his reasons for leaving the nations in Canaan, no longer willing to drive them out, even his reasons for doing that is rooted in his loving concern for them. There are two reasons given in the text for his doing that. First, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, so that future generations might learn what it means to fight effectively against enemy forces. There would be generations that would rise that didn't have to fight the battles to get into Canaan. How are they going to learn to fight? Well, he's going to leave some enemy nations there so that they also will be trained in proper warfare. And then the second reason is that their faith will be strengthened. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And then in chapter 4 of the third verse, verse 4, chapter 3, he says this, that the nations were left for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. God left those nations unejected from Cana in order to provide a test for Israel. To give them an opportunity in the face of temptation to trust him 
and obey Him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes the very reason God does not remove trials from our lives is so that He might test our faith and ultimately strengthen our faith. He does it to remind us just how weak we are. How absolutely dependent we are on Him for grace, moment by moment. If the trials were removed, we might become complacent. We might begin to think that in our own strength we live. But the trials remain so that we might be trained. Furthermore, when God sees His people in distress as a result of their sin, text says he was moved with loving pity verse 18 he was moved out of love to send them a savior to rescue them what do we learn about God here he is a God of great compassion he is a God of great mercy he is a God who is faithful in his powerful loving disciplining promise-keeping purposes for His people. He will not gloss over our sin, but neither will He let our sin destroy us. He will come and rescue. Brothers and sisters, what we are given here in this seventh book of the Old Testament is a glimpse into the redeeming compassion and love of our great God. We see something of the saving heart of the Lord. His People sin, and He comes to them and delivers them in compassion. He delivers them by first giving them over to enemies so that they might be trained. They grieve in their oppression. He's moved with love and pity, and He comes by sending a Savior to rescue them from their sin and to give them peace. The problem is the peace never lasts. The deliverance never lasts. Because the rescuer never lasts. The judges never last. They have peace for as long as the judge lives. But when the judge dies, the peace ends and the people revert back to the rebellious ways. And the scripture says even more than that, they become more corrupt than their fathers. Sin has a degenerative effect. It is never satisfied to maintain a certain level. It is always working to take us deeper and deeper into its grips. So when you read through the book of Judges, as we will, you'll see generally this pattern that with each successive season, the time of peace grows shorter. The time of suffering and distress grows longer. The character of the judges becomes more flawed till finally we are left with that tragic figure, Samson. So we come in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 to see the summary of this whole time. It's put like this. So the people in Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It was their land. And yet, they abdicated. And they're living among the land of the Canaanites. Verse 6, 
and their daughters they took for themselves for wives, their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. As we'll see in our ongoing study through this book, the book of Judges leaves us wanting more. The feats of heroism, the acts of deliverance are in and of themselves momentous, but they're always short-lived. The Israelites keep returning to a life of sin and rebellion against God. And in this sense, the, the book of Judges stands as a testimony not only to the faithfulness of God and His grace and mercy, but also to the need of God to raise up a judge who will never die. A judge who will save his people from their sin once and for all and keep them saved. A judge whose work will never fail, whose grace will never fade. So the book of Judges is given to us in Scripture to point us forward to Jesus Christ, who is a greater, final judge. God sent Jesus into the world to save His people from our sin. And Jesus does this by taking our place before God and keeping the righteous commandments of God, earning righteousness not for Himself, but for all who will trust in Him. And then submitting Himself to death on the cross under the righteous judgment of God against sin, not for Himself, He committed no sin, but for all sinners who will trust in Him. So that in him, we will find a deliverance, a Savior that will provide righteousness that God requires, an atoning sacrifice, payment for sin that He requires that we cannot provide. Jesus is the great, final, saving judge of sinners. And Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as a compassionate, willing Savior of sinners. He is willing to save any and all who come to Him in faith. And if you're not trusting Jesus this morning, friend, listen to me. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of being punked by sin? Aren't you tired of being enslaved? Being jerked around and being led to think things and believe things and do things that you know and heart of hearts at late at night when you're trying to go to sleep, you know, you know are wrong. Aren't you tired? What did the Israelites do? They were in distress. They just cried out, God, I'm a mess. We've blown it. God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners is a God full of mercy and pity for sinners. And He will save. Acknowledge your lostness. Acknowledge your need. Cry out to Him. He'll save you. Receive Jesus Christ, the true Savior. You'll be reconciled to God. You'll be given new life. You'll be made a child of God. You'll find grace, love, mercy flowing to you through Jesus that you perhaps never have allowed yourself to think is even possible. That's precisely why He came. It's precisely what He does. Brothers and sisters, our sin is great. 
We must never pretend otherwise. But God's grace is greater. And we must never lose sight of that. So when sin is made known, don't cover it. Don't whitewash it. Don't pretend. Own it. Acknowledge it. And look to your Savior who shed His blood for every last one of your sins. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for giving us such a Savior. Thank You for the Lord Jesus. Thank You that He is a judge who never dies. His work never fails. His grace and mercy never fade. Help us to rest in Him, to hope in Him. We pray to you in his name. Amen.